Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. So today, my guest is Wendy Adamson, and she is the author of two books, Motherload and Encourageable. And on today's show, she's going to talk about her own recovery trauma, but specifically talking about intergenerational trauma, how her own mother's mental illness impacted her, and how her addiction and mental illness impacted her own children, and how she was able to get recovery and help everyone in her family heal. It's a wonderful story of hope and possibility, so I really hope you all enjoy it and get a lot out of it. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure, and I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Wendy Adamson, and she is author of two books, Motherload and her new book, Encourageable, that's, I think, coming out, or has it come out yet? It's it's out. It it's came out, out okay. Lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Awesome. And Wendy is going to talk about a little bit of her own journey and her writing and encourageable is about Wendy getting into some of her own history, which leads us to a conversation about intergenerational trauma. 
and how that impacts addiction, recovery, getting better, mental health, all of that. So, Wendy, please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm just so honored to be here on your show. Yeah, you. thank you. I am an author, and I also head up a nonprofit, my son's nonprofit, and uh, work with teens. So, you know, it's like, I feel like my life is very rich today. It wasn't always the case, but right. I was compelled to, because I have such, have had such a crazy life and I have experienced so much healing that I wanted to share that with people that, you know, are struggling and feel like there's no coming back from that kind right. of a damage of addiction and alcoholism that I myself created. You know, how do you heal after that? You know, and the good news is you may impact others through your addiction, but you can impact them through your recovery and through your healing. So the two books I wrote, as I was telling you, that uh, Mother Load was the first one I wanted to, to share that was just burning in me to get out. Then I felt like I kind of scanned over my adolescence. And during COVID, I was doing groups with teens, adolescents, and oh my goodness, they were struggling, are struggling right now so much, you know, yeah, so much absolutely. suicidal ideation, self-harm, you know, gender questioning, just so much going on. And, you know, put social media on top of that or bullying on top of that. Many of the things I, you know, didn't struggle with, but I still struggled and the language is still the same. So as a teen, I was labeled incorrigible, you know, and incorrigible, right. if I can just read the definition, is not able to be corrected, improved, or reformed. So that's the justice system is called me incorrigible. I was, so they pretty much gave up on me and put me into the system. That's like so horrible that, you know, it's like so hopeless. Wow. And they're still calling teens this today incorrigible. You know, it's like, it's, you know, you'd think we'd have advanced enough to use trauma-informed language, you know, for right, these, these right. kids that are going into the system. I didn't know quite what it was, what, but it, what it meant for me is that I had no say-so. I was taken away from my father. I was plucked from my one life and put in juvenile hall, and then from their foster homes, kind of just different environments, you know, and nobody was asking, well, what's wrong here, you know, because if they had, right. you know, we could have like talked about my mother's suicide, we could have talked about seven years of her mental illness in my first seven years um, growing up. Right. You know, we might have talked about that. We might have looked under the hood and, and seen what was going on with me, but nobody was asking. And once you get in the system, you're locked in there. It kind of keeps you stuck, especially if they were using words like incorrigible and telling you that you're a hopeless case. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, when I take calls from parents trying to get help for their kids, you know, and currently 
you know, I would never say to a parent, well, they sound incorrigible, you know, beyond reform. That sounds hopeless. I mean, I feel like uh, part of my desire to write was to give other people hope, you know, that you aren't incorrigible. You know, there is hope. You can come out the other side. And, you know, what really transformed everything that I had been through is, you know, taking my experience and using it as, as a tool to help others. In my childhood, we weren't allowed to talk about my mother's mental illness. So there was a lot of shame around it. You know, right, she, right. Went to the men- she went to a mental hospital, which later I would go to that same mental hospital that she was in. Thus, the wow. trans, the the trauma, the generational trauma, being passed yeah. down unconsciously through the children until somebody wakes the the bleep up in the family, right, and gets some kind of help. So it sounds like for you, that was part of what you did was wake up and make change or find change. How did you do that? Well. You know, it wasn't easy because in um, my book, Motherload, I talk about going to jail. I had a psychotic break, a drug-induced psychotic break, which is interesting as I was 38. My mother was 38 when she had a psychotic break and killed herself. She lost her mind and never got an opportunity to get it back. I had 38, I have a psychotic break and I lose my mind. And I end up shooting my husband's girlfriend in the arm. I mean, there's no easy way to say that. There's just wow. no easy way to say that. Right. You know, but there, oh there I was in, in the county jail. And the language that I spoke up until then was a language of victimese. It was my mother's fault, my father's fault. Now it's my husband's fault. It's everybody else's fault. Thus, never owning any responsibility, blaming, blaming, deflecting, as addicts do. But I had a moment of clarity where I realized that I was breaking my own heart, not only my children's, you know, but I have two boys and the trauma was being transmitted to them. The same trauma that I had not resolved was being transmitted to them. Thus, my older son went into the juvenile court system as well. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So there was a moment there that you moved out of that victimese, per se. And there's a moment where you had clarity and you you took on that responsibility for your own change. Well, it was a moment of clarity where I realized that I, you know, was breaking my own heart. I was making choices based on self. And I had this inspiration, for lack of a better word, in the county jail. And this was, you know, not a huge leap, but it was like, 
well, the best way to pay him back, him being, he had moved on to the mistress. He had, it's, it's, you know, I wrote about it, but the best would be to be a success. But what was success? I had no idea. I mean, success I had thought was a marriage. I thought success was children. I thought success was, you know, all of these things. But it, it just occurred to me that for me at that moment, success meant me getting sober. Okay. And in the county jail, there's no re-entry program. There's nobody, no counselors. There's no therapist going, where are you going to go when you get out? What are you going to do? How are you going to increase the odds so that you don't return? You know, there was nobody asking those questions, but by the grace of some higher power, the woman that taught self-esteem classes in the county jail ended up sponsoring me and my son, my youngest son, my older son was in the juvenile court system. She ended up paying for two months rent at a transitional living when I got out, you know, and it's like, you never know where the grace of God, I choose to call God, the universe, you never know how it's going to work. But it feels like I, I felt like I surrendered enough where I took one step in the right direction. There was somebody to walk me the next two steps. Yeah. I mean, that's what that sounds like. How blessed the universe, God, whatever, put that person there to just help you up enough to do something different. And there has been a legion of angels in my life that have helped me over and over and over again. And it's like, lest I forget that, you know, I, I have to remind myself and, you know, that's part of what I convey in mother load is just the many people that come out of the woodwork and circled the wagons around me and my son, my youngest son, and later my older son. But, you know, it's like my conditioning up until then, what had always been, I had lived a defended life. I had lived a defended life. I had learned to defend myself in juvenile hall or jail or through drugs and alcohol. Trust no one. Trust no one. They'll take it as a sign of weakness. But when you're leveled to the point where you're out of ideas and you surrender and people are kind to you, you have no defense against kindness. Kindness. Yeah. It, I mean, that's, I experienced so much kindness initially when I was getting sober that I, it started to change my mind about the world that we're living in. I mean, still, still to this day, right, you look yeah. around you know, the news, it's just, it looks grim. But when you remember that, you know, the the kindness I experience, I continue to experience, it's just, it's transforming power, you know, and we forget, we forget what a little gesture can do to someone. I mean, I remember someone remembering my name. It was like, because I felt so invisible for so long that Meeting them again and them actually remembering my name was like, wow, wow. It's like a profound experience of like care, of importance. Maybe I'm not so incorrigible. 
maybe no. this person can see that goodness in me just by knowing my name. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is that I think people saw it in me before I saw it. You know what I mean? It's they believed in me before I had the belief that I could actually stay sober. But staying sober was just the physical part for me. You know, it was the foundation right. I needed in order to continue to work on the the family. And, and I got into the field of addiction and, and mental health and began to see how my life experience was, again, a tool to help somebody else. Right, that you could take your experience and that offer of strength and hope that was given to you, you can give to someone else, which also helps you feel more value, more worth to the world. And it's just this, I don't know, I look at it as a positive feedback loop that we start to create. Instead of that negative feedback loop, we slowly start to create it. And and I think also what you're saying is, you know, there are people out there that want to help. Yeah. And it's changed my language from one of victimies to one of the heart, one of able to be authentic. You know, there was like, I worked at a detox center in LA for five years. And when I was talking to somebody on the other side of my desk, trying to convince them they needed, you know, to, to go to treatment or somewhere else to get more help, it was like, I could use my experience and I could see the good. So I could see the good of everything I had been through and transmute the negative around it and use it as like a tool in that loop, get in that loop. You know, what we put out there, we get back. The universe responds by corresponding to my nature, you know, and if my nature thinks, if I think I'm a victim, I will find the evidence to support that constantly, yep. validate that, validate that. But if I see the good, if I see the good operating in the human heart or in people, then I continue to look for the good in people. It's not right. easy. And I'm not saying that I do it all the time, but it's like, you know, I need to, I even saying it, I need to be reminded to always look for the good. Right. We start to get in the habit, I guess, uh, of doing that and seeing it. And we start to notice it more. And uh, sometimes it's it's hard because sometimes things are really hard and really bad. But, you know, we can't still find the, the goodness in sometimes even those most dire situations. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not dismissing like for a minute things that I've gone through have been very challenging things that I've seen others go through that aren't, you know, I think as a counselor for for years, I felt like when I was really there for somebody and just holding space, not, not telling them or just like allowing them to experience that was when I felt like I was doing my best work, if you will. It's like just holding space for them because people certainly held space for me. I'm just saying that my mind, my, my mind and the way I was programmed had to be shifted. And my right, default right. is still to go there to victim, you know, mode, but not as much. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so you, you wrote your, your first book, Mother Load, which was about this kind of getting sober. And then you went into Encourageable, which is really about digging into your own history and your own childhood and understanding that intergenerational trauma. Can you tell us about that process of, of beginning to understand that intergenerational trauma? The impact of that. So it uh, in Mother Low, we, I allude to it as well, uh, the intergenerational mm-hmm. trauma. But it, you know, I didn't drop into my adolescence, and being that I right, right. work at an adolescent treatment for mental health, I thought that you know teens really could use, or young adults, you know, or anybody could use this book. And you know, when I looked under the hood of everything that had happened based on what I was telling you earlier that my mother, you know, tried to kill herself or it ended up killing herself, but multiple times she was trying to kill herself. And then I did the same thing, ended up in the same hospital. My sons ended up, you know, going to juvie. And then he ended up going in front of the same judge that I went in front of for the same charge I had in the past. So I'm sober at this point, newly sober, and I'm watching my son relive my life almost, you know, and that it's like this, this imprint that is this, that is happening through the generations has to be stopped. And just like you're saying, you know, you're, you were having a psychotic break at 38, just like your mother had a psychotic break and you realize like I'm living my mother's life. And then you're watching your son live your life with all of the pain and hurt and sadness and grief and all of that craziness that comes with addiction and mental health, the pain, the hurt. Wow. Yeah, it was, it really certainly got my attention. You know, I really got my attention and I was paying attention to all of what was happening. And I'll, I'll tell you one other thing that's in mother load then. So my son is in the county jail, men's county jail, and my ex-husband gets arrested. And he's put in the same cell as my son. And was wow. that, that wasn't the sheriff's going, well, let's put this father in with his boy. It was not the sheriff's. It was what I consider some intelligence, some the universe conspiring for healing. So I believe now somebody looking on the outside, oh, that's a tragedy. That's such a tragedy. Father and son together in the same cell. How sad, how devastating. And why you could say that, you could also say that it was an opportunity for them to be there in a way for each other that they had never been before. Because my ex wow. was sober. My son was sober. I, you know, they were forced sober, but I was out here sober. And it was like this in crazy intelligence, like the synchronistic energy of the universe giving us these opportunities to heal. And I, you know, I have seen that over and over again. I conveyed that story, you know, I, I told that story in Motherload, 
but the like what you were asking you know incorrigible is is like going back through my adolescence and really seeing the trouble you know the lost without any boundaries without any role models feeling my way through life and um spoiler alert i made it out i made it to the other side and that's a message worth telling that if you're struggling right, yeah. you can heal and you know another thing that i want to say is about changing the trauma or transmuting it i i believe we can, we have the power to transmute the trauma when one person decides to change that there is a ripple effect within the family system and it became very yep. important for me to heal the relationships with my boys and to be there for my grandkids so you know when i was when i got out of jail and i was in that transitional living i was on welfare before i got my my job and before I figured out how I was going to do this. I was on welfare and I couldn't afford to buy my son a pair of shoes. He had huge holes. And I had somewhat pride, you know, that it was like hard for me to ask for help. It was hard for me to receive help. But this woman that had been through the program offered to buy Ricky two pairs of shoes. Okay, so she bought him two pairs of shoes. And he ultimately, he turned into a sneakerhead. That was, he uh -huh. was like 10 years old. His birthday's today and he's 38 or 39 now. So uh -huh. one or the other. But, <laughs> but in, his, in his early 30s, he was struggling, you know, not with drugs, but just struggling with purpose and meaning of his life. And he thought back to that woman, uh, Becky, who gave him those shoes and he looked over at his 150 pairs of Nike that he had collected, stacked in his room, boxed up to this, like up the wall in his place. And he decided that he would give his shoes away. You know, that, that, wow. Because one person was kind to him two decades before that ripple effect, you know, Becky didn't give him the shoes thinking, well, this kid's going to pass it on. But he was at a low point in his life. And he started this nonprofit, Have a Soul, that I also work with. And we've given out over, uh, I want to say 35,000 pairs of shoes. Nike is a big supporter. NB, the That's Pacers. amazing. And we were on the Ellen Show during COVID, which was like- wow. Is that, it's like crazy. It's like huge transformation. It just it shows you that incredible possibility out there and how when we are able to open ourselves to that, 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 oh, I don't know what, that goodness, that generosity, surrender, I don't know, all those things that... I don't know what I'm totally trying to say here, but you, you just see that possibility and be able to see that transformation that it's so possible. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, the, like I was saying earlier, the ripple effect of, of my recovery and my yeah. uh, shifting the trajectory of the family lineage from mental illness, addiction to one of healing. It's like, you don't know it. Sometimes as a parent, you're just throwing information over the wall. 
you know, and you don't know if it's landing, you don't know if they're catching it, but you're like, you. and when I say throwing information, I mean, by being an example, you know, because most of what he was, he was watching me, you, you know, he may yeah. not have been listening, but he was watching me. And so as I used my experience to serve others, ultimately, I think, you know, he's using his experience to help others. It's How is that even possible? You know? Right. I mean, this is a common experience I have working with people who are struggling with addiction and, and they do have children is, and they're starting to get sober and they're starting to look back at maybe some of the wreckage of their addiction and especially on their own children often they ask what you know what have i done and 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 there's no hope here with my with my kids because of because of all of my addiction and all my choices i made and now there's just no hope and they're in this completely lost space and um it's so painful i would imagine for a parent to be there when they're in the midst of that that transition from addiction to sobriety to health it's so painful it's so you know the shame was like i was bogged down with shame you know it was it took time you know it took time and effort on my part and it was like sure i wanted to say i'm sorry i'm sorry for what i did and i and i did that i said i was sorry it was more about my actions moving forward you know because initially at the beginning i n- couldn't metabolize my feelings and the shame or the the regret and again i hung in there because i wanted to be an example to others that you can make it. You can do this. I mean, that kind of was like wanting to to heal my family became top priority for me. It became so important. And it was like I had to let go of the outcome. I had to just take yeah. the next indicated act step, the next step, and let go of the outcome. Like, when is this going to get better? How is this going to get better? This is the shame that moms, I, you know, and I'm sure dads carry as well is that how do we recover from this kind of dis- self-destruction that addiction can cause within the family? But you can recover. I I've, am here to say you can recover. You can heal. And it got to the point where my, you know, my youngest son moved out when I was 18 but it got to a point I was always there for him and I was his go-to person whenever he was struggling. He'd come to me because I left the door open. Right. And it's that slow process. I, I like what you say about letting go, um, letting go of the outcome and just showing up and working to be your best self and be in recovery. And, you, you know, when, when I think about recovery, it's it's really about it's not about not doing anything or not doing something. I mean, that's part of it, but it's really about living your best life. It's about being the best person you can. And part of that is giving back to others and I guess giving back to yourself, healing yourself so you can be there for others. Yeah. I mean, that came early on. You know, I 
I realized, for lack of a better word, I felt so damaged by circumstances. Growing up with a mom that was trying to kill herself and ultimately did, I felt responsible, just like kids often do. Like maybe there was something I could have said. Maybe there was something I could have done. And I I saw how I started acting out that scenario with um, women that I was working with. If a woman, you know, presented in a way that reminded me of my mother, I would start like, I have to fix this until I recognized I was trying. If I can fix her, I can fix my mother. And so I, I had to become aware of my patterns and choose a different way. And that was keeping boundaries, internal boundaries and external boundaries with others, which is challenging sometimes. Absolutely. And I make up your writing is a big part of exploring those patterns. Yeah. Writing is so powerful. You know, writing has been amazing for me. I do creative writing groups at treatment centers here in, in Los Angeles for young adults as well. It's like writing shows you something you can't see or you can't access. Like sometimes, you know, like when I was talking about being defended life, that there is this sensor in me, but there's something that happens when pen hits the paper that things are revealed to you that you didn't know through your writing. And specifically in incorrigible, when I was writing incorrigible during COVID, I really um, started to see, you know, my father and how he must have struggled trying to raise a wild child like me. So it's kind of like reaching through a portal of a time. And I very much felt my uh, father's presence around during that time. A mother load was... I, more focused on my mother, incorrigible was my father, but it was like really just empathizing for what I put him through as a kid who had no clue. It's it's just really healing, again, generational trauma and things yeah. that I I had no words as a kid to articulate or no opportunity that I can recall to articulate what was going on with me. And if I did, I don't know that I would have, but, you know, we get a chance to do it again. I'm working on my third book right now that is um, collaboration with my son, the Have a Soul kiddo, and that about the nonprofit. So we're working on that together. And then I, here's another opportunity where I get to see his point of view and go back and relive what we went through together on paper. And and be able to be there with him through it. I mean, I think as as a parent, I think that's um, amazing that because you've done all of your work, you can be there for him in a way that he may need because you're okay. Yeah, yeah, we're all okay. We are. Right. Well, my older son got married. He has his own kids, and. He's a a business owner and a father, and uh, my youngest son is getting married, and I'm sober now 28 years, and it's like, we're all okay. We're all okay. 
you know, and it's like when I got out of county jail and was living in transitional living with my youngest son non-welfare, it looked pretty grim. But thankfully, life is not a snapshot. You know, it's not just one image frozen in time. You know, we get opportunities, always getting opportunities to redeem ourselves. It's like, I love the um, hero's journey, you know, where you're you're the call for adventure. You know, do you answer the call? And do you step over the threshold? I'm glad I answered the call because it's, it's, it's really made a profound impact on my family. Oh, Wendy, you, you bring so much hope and so much possibility. I think we could keep talking about hope and possibility. Before you go, one question I love to ask every guest is if you could say one thing to someone out there who's struggling, maybe it's a, a, a teen that is struggling with some of the same kind of trauma that you're going through, what would you, what would you want to say to them? I would say, ask for help. Ask somebody that you trust. Somebody, go to somebody, ask for help. Tell them, you know, your secret. You know, if you're thinking of harming yourself or or having bad thoughts, reach out to somebody. Don't be afraid, you know, to ask for help. I think that's what kept, blocked me for so long. Ask for help. I love it. Wendy, where can people find more information about you? And if they have any questions or want to reach out to you, how can they find you? WendyAdamson.com. And then I'm also on Facebook. And my books are available on Amazon, Mother Load, L-O-A-D, and Incorrigible, you know, by Wendy Adamson. So, yeah. Awesome. I will include all of those links in the show notes as well. So you can go to theaddictedmind.com. Wendy, it was so wonderful to have you on and just hear your story and your story of hope. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thanks everyone for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. If you are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please write us a review or share the podcast with a friend. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring.
I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.